Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I don't know about your household, but uh, it's a special day for us. Um, Iona and I, when we were first married, uh, struggled with infertility quite a bit. And finally, in the fifth year of our marriage, uh, we thought we were going to have a little baby. It was one of those great events where you go home and tell your family. We were in Dallas Seminary at the time, but we were home for Christmas, and we took great joy in taking our parents out for dinner and announcing this. And you know, for uh, her parents, this would have been grandchild 3,425. In my household, this was going to be the first uh, grandchild, and uh, it didn't happen. We had a miscarriage, and it was, uh, you know, fraught with all of the emotions that usually go along with such an event. But uh, three years later, finally, on May 12th, uh, Rachel came into this world, our eldest, and there was a time of great celebration and joy. Um, but I went to the hospital the next morning, Sunday morning, and I realized that today was Mother's Day. And for the first time, we got to celebrate Mother's Day for real. And so I brought a rose with me to the hospital, and Ione hadn't remembered either that it was Mother's Day. And it just, just is a neat time for a lot of families. For some families, it's a struggle. It's not always the easiest thing, not always the easiest celebration. Um, but I'm just going to lay it out there, and I, I apologize ahead of time if any of you may disagree with me, but um, I had the greatest mom in the world. All right, Just put that down somewhere. If you want to write it in your notes, that's great. Uh, but she, she was a unique woman. I grew up, my brother and I grew up in a non-traditional home. Uh, my dad had died when I was two, so all of the cares of our life rested upon her shoulders, and thank goodness uh, they were broad shoulders, uh, tough shoulders. Um, just a couple of the zillions of stories I could tell you, and I'm sure many of you could walk up here and tell me stories about your mom, incredible uh, acts on your behalf, but I remember um, getting, coming home from school one day in grade school and I don't know what got into this kid's mind. He was two years older than me, somewhat larger. Uh, but he just came around from behind me and just punched me square in the face. Just really hurt. I'd never been punched in the nose before. And uh, I don't know what happened. I just, one of those deals where my uh, horrible temper took over. And the next thing that I can remember is sitting on top of him, pummeling this kid. Uh, into a bloody mess until another kid pulled me off and, you know, I broke his glasses. Uh, he wore thick glasses and I, they just snapped. And so his parents called my mom and said that we owed them a hundred and some dollars for these glasses. And so we went over to their house on a Saturday, my mom's only day off of the week. She hadn't said a whole lot to me. I, I was expecting to get yelled at, to be punished in some way, but we just got to the house, and uh, the parents ushered us into the living room. Mom wrote out a check for the glasses, and those parents proceeded to lecture her on what a poor mother she was, raising such a hooligan in the neighborhood. And they had some choice words for her, some even better words for me. Yeah, my mom just sat there in silence. Eventually, she got up, and she ripped that check out of her book, and she handed it to the uh, husband. And she said, listen, I'm going to pay for these glasses, right? Uh, my son broke them. But I want you to know that when I get him home, 
I will discipline him. But we're going to only do this once. And if your son ever hits my son again, I'm going to let David do what David does. All right? And at that moment, I knew that my mom fully understood the story. Right? I didn't have to defend myself. I didn't have to do any further explanation. She was up on what was going on. And even though we went home that day and she acquainted me with the wonders of the yardstick, it was still, you know, something that I was kind of proud to take that punishment. I just thought, well, that, that's great. And my mom had, and I had an understanding kind of going on forward in that moment. It's not like she, you know, cleared everything that I had done from, or did from that time on, but at least she understood my world. And needless to say, that kid did a broad walk around our house on the way to school for the next few days, at least. So being a mom is a special, special thing. And I love to hear people's mom's stories. Uh, moms mean a lot, right? Well, this morning, we're going to look at some really great stories from Scripture, and we're just going to kind of touch on them as we zap along here. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open to 2 Kings. That's where we're going to land first, chapter 4. Not a story that a lot of us are familiar with. But as we do this, uh, as we get ready to open God's Word, let's just ask Him for His blessing as we do this, all right? Father, we thank You for moms, such special people in most of our lives. I thank You, Father, for the memory of them. Some of us are still in the home, and uh, yet others have had uh, experiences that aren't so great. But Lord, overall, we just say thank You. We pray that You'd help us to not only honor them, but to live up to expectations from them. And most of all, Father, I just want to honor this morning those moms that are passing along their faith, that realize they're part of a spectrum, a continuum of faith stories. And may their children grow up not only praising their moms, but mostly praising you. Help us to see that, those examples, Lord, right here in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Kings chapter 4, Verse 1, we have the story of the widow seeking wisdom from Elisha, the prophet. And it says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. Now let's just put a little historical context on here. This is a woman who has been married to one of the prophets. And if you remember from this section of scripture, not only was there the prophet, like Elisha or his predecessor Elijah, but there were schools of prophets, men that gathered together and routinely were filled with the Spirit and able to prophesy the teachings of God. Um, this woman had been married to one of them. Uh, a lot of scholars, including Josephus, the Jewish historian, believe that the prophet that's in view here is Obadiah, who actually has his own book in the Minor Prophets in Scripture. But Obadiah was a prophet who was commissioned to speak to the king of Israel, King Ahab, who was a wicked, wicked king. Anyway, he had died, if that's the case. And this widow, she was trying to be a mom to her boys, uh, had run into trouble, financial trouble. And she had gone ahead and indebted herself to some people, and they demanded repayment. And they were getting ready to sell her sons into slavery. So she goes crying to Elisha. It says, your servant, my husband, is dead. You know, she's putting the onus of responsibility right where it belongs. Your servant. And you know that your servant 
feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all of your neighbors, empty vessels, and not, for, not a few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Right? So she does that. She went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured out the oil uh, into these other vessels, uh, they became full, and she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. And one of her sons said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing, and she came and told the man of God, that's Elisha, and she said, go, tell, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. It's a funny little story stuck in here in the middle of the Old Testament. But basically what's going on here is not unlike another story we read in the New Testament, right? In the Gospels in the city of Canaan when Jesus is going to the wedding probably of a relative and they've run out of wine. And if you remember that story, Jesus is telling them to fill the big giant pots full with water. And then he does his first miracle, which is turns that water into wine. It's a story of abundance. It's a miracle of abundance. And Elisha says to this woman, tell you what, get some vessels, some empty jars, whatever you need. Uh, could have been made out of stone. We don't know. But he says, get as many as you can. Uh, the reason that I think that she just starts pouring and that it never stops is because of the irregular verb for to pour that is found here. It's not the typical verbiage that you would find for this kind of narrative. But Elisha tells her, just do this. This is a step of faith. A jar of oil. I could not find anybody who could give me an idea of what the worth is of a jar of oil, which by its lack of information tells me that it wasn't necessarily a valuable thing. It's not like gold or frankincense. Uh, it's not something that people really wanted a lot of, but everybody used it. It was something that was there. And this is indicative because of the question that he asks her, what do you have in your home? What is it that you, you poor widow, you mother of sons, what do you have that can generate an income for you? And this woman faithfully answers just one jar of oil. Oil was used in many applications. It was for uh, anointing. Uh, oil could be used for burning, for cooking, but everybody needed oil. And so the test of faith here is for her to go out and find as many vessels as she can. What a great story. Uh, so many times single parents find themselves in situations that are, seem desperate, seem like no one cares, especially feels like God isn't listening. But we're shown in this story several things, and this, these are the, the key takeaways that I get from this story. First of all, follow advice from godly people. If you find yourself as a single parent, man, what a great opportunity you have to come to someone that you respect, whether that's an older man or woman, a pastor, somebody, and put forth your problem and say, what can I do? 
What's going to happen here? Follow advice from a godly person. Um, we didn't have that growing up. We, we weren't part of the church. We didn't have anybody in our lives that I knew uh, that I could characterize as being godly, that had that kind of wisdom. Uh, therefore, we suffered from the lack of it. We just didn't have it. My mom did the best she could, but she didn't have anybody whispering in her ear. She didn't have any direction from a pastor. How great would it have been if she had had that relationship? Now, later on, when we all became believers, she availed herself of that, and that was really great. But if you're here this morning, you're sitting in a church full of godly people, and you can follow advice. Secondly, you need to work obediently. It's interesting that Elisha doesn't just solve her problem, isn't it? He doesn't just say, well, here, I, I understand that uh, you have been the wife of a faithful prophet. Obadiah was somewhat famous even in Elisha's day. And I'll tell you what, because of his faithfulness, I'm going to bless you with this kind of uh, financial security. I'm going to give you what you need. Instead, no, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to act in faith, go out, and in obedience, gather all these different vessels. Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. So often when people came to him and said, I need help, what did he do? He said, you need to go and show me that you believe what I'm telling you. And so he would say to a man, go dip yourself in the water. What? Seven times. And you had to guess that when he was dipping himself third and fourth and the fifth time, that he probably was thinking, this is so stupid. You know, do I really believe and as this woman is gathering vessels and having her son go to all the neighbors and say, do you have anything that we can use? And looking around, finding things, that she probably was a great test of her faith. Wow. How do I show myself obedient here? When we are given great advice, if we do that first step, the advice from a godly, wise person, then once we know it, we should act in obedience. And what I love about this is that it demonstrates her faith. Uh, to whom? The question should be asked. Who is seeing her faith here? Elisha obviously wasn't there at that point because she goes back to report to him at the end of the story, this is what happened. No. Who she's demonstrating her faith to are who? Her sons. Her family is seeing her faith. That's an amazing part of this story. When we are going to take godly advice, when we are going to act in obedience, it means a lot to us as a person, as an individual. Uh, for this mom, I'm sure she felt grateful for what eventually happens. But the story of faith and the act of faith that goes on here is being communicated much more loudly to her sons than to her. They're seeing what God can do through the acts of their parent. How awesome is that? And so at the end there, when they're pouring out this oil, as long as she keeps the oil poured, her sons, by the way, are very involved with this. They're changing out the vessels just as fast as they can. As they fill up, they're putting another vessel under there. And as long as she keeps that oil pouring into these empty vessels, they're getting what they need, right? It's when they run out of vessels and her son says there are no more that she stops with the pouring. And not only does that pay off her creditors, but it also provides, according to Elisha, enough for her to live. Uh, I don't know if it's for the rest of her life, but it seems to indicate that, doesn't it? 
she no longer will be suffering need. From a little comes a lot. I love this part where he says to her, what do you have in your home? What do you have in your home? Whether you're a single mom or you're in a traditional family or whatever, what do you have in your home that communicates God to your kids? I just kind of have to believe that when this was over, they took that one vessel, that original vessel full of oil that they had, and they put it up on a shelf. And I think for the rest of their lives, those boys, every time they came home to visit their mom, they would have looked up on that shelf and they would have remembered this event. They would have remembered the time when the holy man of God had given a challenge to the mom. And they as a family had participated in an act of faith. And that faith would have lasted. They already had the patronage and the example of their father, Obadiah, but he was dead. He was gone. And here is this woman, their mother, demonstrating her love to her family by doing a little, or doing a lot, excuse me, from just a little. What do you have in your home that your kids look at and say, that's the example, that's the story I'll always remember of God acting in our family's life? And you say, well, that only happens for people in these situations. <coughs> I, I challenge you. I think God will act for all of us if we ask him to. The challenge here is not that, oh, are you special enough to have God intervene into your life? The only question remains is, are you seeking godly wisdom? Are you looking for help from people who are showing you an example of faith? God does do some amazing things for us. Secondly, we're going to turn to another story here, one that most of us are familiar with, and that's the example of faith by the mother of Moses. And I love this story because right at the beginning in Exodus chapter 1, and a lot of us skip over Exodus 1 because we don't really know what to do with that part of the story, but we have the story of two Hebrew midwives, right? So to put this in context, Joseph had moved his family from the promised land down into Egypt due to famine, and he was a great blessing. You remember that? What his brothers had intended for evil, God had turned to good. Great faith story in and of itself. And then they lived there for many, 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 many years. But they became so populous, so prosperous, that the Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, decided that he had to do something about it. So he brings in these two midwives in chapter 1, and he basically says to them, uh, if a male child is born, let it die. Do nothing to sustain it. If a female child is born, then let it be. What a story. What a challenge. Well, this is the story of Moses. We usually start it in chapter 2, where it says that a certain Levite took another Levite as a wife, and they had a family. But that's really not the story here. The story here is these midwives acting in faith, going against the orders of the king of their land, which certainly could have caused them death uh, in not killing all the sons. In fact, they came up with a, an excuse. You know, well, the Hebrew women are so quick to have their sons that we can't get there in time. The purpose of saying all this is to show that I think these, Hebrew, these uh, midwives, excuse me, had a great influence 
upon Jacobit. Now that's Moses' mother. So let's just pick up in chapter 2 there. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Moses was a fine child. In the Hebrew, it just means that he was uh, easy to look at. He was beautiful. You don't often see a baby in Scripture labeled as fine child. When you look in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, even uh, Stephen, as he's getting ready to preach and to be martyred as the first Christian martyr, he also says that God looked upon Moses and he was beautiful to God. Uh, This baby must have been something. But anyway, because of the example of faith that had been shown to her, she and her husband Amram decide that they are going to hide um, Moses. They're not going to deal with him as the Pharaoh indicated that they should by killing him or allowing him to die. And after three months, they just can't do it anymore. They've run out of creative ways to keep this baby hidden. And so you get this sense of desperation that Jacobed decides that I got to do something. So she creates a basket, and we teach the story in Sunday school, but I think this would be a great story for any parenting class that we take. And she put that baby in the Nile. Now, the irony of this story, Pharaoh had ordered that all male children were to be killed, that his guards were to go around his soldiers and take these male babies and cast them off into the Nile River, right? That was supposed to be their death sentence. But in fact, what we see here happening with Moses is that getting put into the Nile is his key to life. It's a step of faith. That's what his mother saw. And I I don't know what the discussion was between Amram, Moses' father, and Jacobed, his mother, if there was a big argument and they were going back and forth. And he said, are you kidding? If the Pharaoh finds out what we're doing, the rest of our family is going to be killed. You remember Aaron, or Moses had an older brother, Aaron, and an older sister named Miriam and so forth. Uh, this was a risk. This wasn't just uh, individual private step of faith. This was a risk. But she had the faith to do this. And when she puts him into the water, uh, Moses' basket, probably from the crying uh, that he's doing in that basket, uh, catches the attention of Pharaoh's daughter and says that she takes him from the river, right? And then Moses' sister comes along. She had some kind of access to the royal family. I don't know if she cleaned for them, worked for them, if it was just a divine appointment. And she says to Pharaoh's daughter, do you want me to find a wet nurse for this baby? And Pharaoh's daughter gave her permission to do so. And when she did this, uh, they went and hooted, of course, Miriam Get, but Jacobet, Moses' real mother, to come and to take care of him. All of that is interesting. Most of you are sitting there, yes, I know this story. You don't have to belabor that. But I just want to point out some of these facts for us because we really need to get a grasp of this. Moses is named Moses which means to draw forth, to get from something, usually water, right? And it's because Pharaoh's daughter saw this little baby and she says, I took him from the river. How ironic that all these other babies may have been killed by being thrown into the Nile. Moses' salvation is that he's already in the Nile and being drawn out. It's a sign of the mercy of God. By the faith of the mom, by the faith of this family, 
Moses is giving another take on life, and he's going to be raised in the family of Pharaoh. That's the backstory. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll pick it up uh, a little bit later on. We'll start in verse 23, where the author of Hebrews is giving us our list of heroes of the faith, and he says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, which we already just read, because they saw the child was beautiful. There's that term again. Why are they hiding their child? Because he was beautiful. I guess I've been to the hospital enough and seen enough ugly babies, but that just seems so strange. There's got to be some connotation, and I, I did my best to try to find that beautiful other than physical reference, but could find nothing. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Yeah. And that's not a light thing. I hope that you don't just let that section of the verse skip past you. By faith, Moses. So we've got several faith stones. By faith, Moses is hidden, and uh, they're not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Wow. Moses had the opportunity to live and to enjoy life by being raised in Pharaoh's household and all that came with that. He may never have been seen as the son of Pharaoh, but he certainly would have had all the food that he could have eaten. He would have had riches beyond belief. He would have had a pretty easy lifestyle, but he chose not to do that, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking uh, for the reward. By faith, another faith statement, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Uh, By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the Passover of the firstborn. All of these are just by faith, by faith, by faith, because he believed in God. Where did Moses get this faith? Being raised in Pharaoh's household? I don't think so. That's not where this faith comes from. By faith, Moses did these things because I believe that Jacobed, his mother, when she had the opportunity to nurse her own child, to spend time with him as a young boy growing up, and I don't think it stopped when he was done nursing and weaned, right? She had influence there. She had the opportunity for influence there. Jacobed took her role so seriously. She was going to teach her son what he would never learn in the household of Pharaoh. We send our kids off to school, don't we? Most of us, every day. What are they learning in school? What are they learning from their coaches? What are they learning from their dance instructors? What are they learning from all the people that we put them in the place of? Right? Do we take our responsibility to counter that with the teaching of truth in our home? Moms, I can't think of a greater privilege than having these opportunities. Most of us have this opportunity without fear of death, without evading the edict of the king, and yet we don't take it. We're waiting for someone else, for something else to happen in the lives of our children before we teach them. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that we have to have faith. Just like with the widow in Elisha's day, Moses' mother had to have faith. She put that basket together, 
She created it so that her son could be cast into the water. She didn't know what was going to happen, but she had to believe that God was part of this, and she put him out there. And when her daughter came back and asked her to come and be a wet nurse to this child, can you imagine what went on in her heart? Oh, Jehovah, you are amazing. You are great. Can it be that my son is going to get the opportunity to be raised in this home with all this food and, and, and pleasures of life, and I'm going to have the chance to teach him? We have to have faith. We have to be willing, secondly, to disciple our children. If you read one of Barna's books on raising spiritual champions, uh, the studies show that most people have formed their idea of who God is by age three. Seems very young, doesn't it? You say, well, I know three-year-olds, and there's not theological geniuses. But the idea is, the concept of who God is, that there is a God that he has a role in our life. And certainly by the time we reach adolescence, we learn very little more about God in essence than we already know. What an opportunity that every mom has to have a spiritual impact on their children. And you say, well, I missed that boat. You know, maybe like you were in my household, my mom didn't know Christ in those days. Um, there are other reasons why people don't take advantage of that. And now you're a grandparent right? You have that opportunity again. Uh, it might be dicey. Your kids may not want you to do play that role in their kid's life, but we've got to take it by faith that we can do that. Maybe you have kids coming into your household. You're one of those homes in the neighborhood where all the other kids want to come. That's what my home was, uh, be, mainly because my mom wasn't home all day, <laughs> but they still came. And over time, they got to where they really got to know my mom, right? But maybe your home is that way and you are intentionally creating a home where you want other kids to come. Kids who do not have a godly influence in their life. Kids who do not have parents that are believers. And are you using that? Are you using that to have an opportunity to speak wisdom into the life of these kids? To teach them about the things of God? Wow. What a powerful place our homes are. It's a risk right? Sometimes it's risky. You can get in trouble for taking such liberties with other people's children, and even sometimes with our own kids. We don't do it well. We were too strong. We whatever. And you hear your kids complain about it when they grow up. They've had enough of church. They've had enough of God. And we were tempted to lose hope. But I'm telling you, there's something going on here. You're part of a line of faith. I don't think Jacob the was the first one to have faith in her family. I think it went on generations before. Notice it says that a certain Levite married a Levite woman. This is the priestly line in Israel. They had faith. When you would get a child in your home, as much as you want to do things uniquely and part of what you and your spouse wish to have happen with your child, we have to recognize that we're just one more step in that line of faith. There are others who have poured in, maybe through prayer, maybe just through how they demonstrated conversations with us, whatever the case is. I, I was talking to Iona about what kind of impact did my mom have on her, and she said it was just the ability to talk. You guys, you and your mother talked constantly. You had this great conversation pattern. 
And that was before my mom became a believer. It was just there. And she wanted to be part of it. What are you doing in your home right now? What's demonstrating the line of faith in your family? How are you taking opportunities like Jacob did to play a role in your kid's life? To let them know who God is and how you're risking everything in your family to stand for God in your home, in your community, where you work, every place, and that they should do the same. Moses and all these faith statements in Hebrews chapter 11 did not come about because uh, he was just this somehow tremendous man of faith that appears on the scene. I believe it happens because of the background that he has, because of the example of faith that his parents were to him, right? Lastly, one more story. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. One more example of a great mom. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm not going to read the entire passage, but let's just say this is the story of the man, Elkanah, and his wife, Hannah. And Hannah wanted a baby. Oh, she so much wanted a baby, but she was struggling with infertility. Um, and she didn't know what to do about it. She prayed and she prayed. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 1, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. It used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I more to you than 10 sons? I understand that. That makes total sense. Because when we were struggling with infertility, I used to ask that very question to my wife. I'd say, well, aren't I enough? Why is this so heartbreaking for you? And the truth is that it was, it was life-changing. I own it, always dreamed of being a mom. She loved that, and she was really good at it. But at that point, it looked hopeless, like that was never going to happen for us. And I wasn't the answer to that problem. There was little that I could do about it. And so the story goes on uh, that Hannah decides to start praying, and she goes to the temple, and she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look at the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is just a prayer of commitment. God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. Uh, I'm not standing up here today saying that you should try to make deals with God. But at the same time, I'm saying that in the desperation of a heart that is wounded, that is, that is lacking uh, something, that God does listen to these prayers. God says, okay. Uh, the priest didn't get it. Eli thought that she was drunk by all of her prayers and her weeping and so forth, and he was the local uh, priest, the judge, one of the earliest judge. But eventually, God answers Hannah's prayer, and she gives birth, uh, birth to the son Samuel. Now, who's Samuel? Samuel will be probably one of the greatest kings, or excuse me, judges of Scripture. He is the one that anoints kings. He anointed Saul and he anointed David. Uh, but it starts because she is allowed to have a child. God hears her prayer, and then she gives that child back to God. What do we learn from this story? Well, Hannah is an example of faith. 
She believes that God's going to hear her prayer. And I think the key thing here in this passage that is you go through life, if you're a mom sitting here today, you need to realize how valuable a friend prayer is, right? Despite our best efforts, despite everything that we tried to do, we took our kid to Awana, we took him to youth group, we took him uh, to everything that we could, our child is not responding in the right way to God's call. What do you have left? Prayer. You want to have a baby, and you cannot, despite all the doctor's appointments and all the procedures, it doesn't seem to work for you. What do you have left? Prayer. Prayer is so powerful. And in this story, it is something that Hannah never loses her grip on. Her husband doesn't understand her prayer life. The, the pastor, uh, Eli, doesn't understand her prayer life. But Hannah is convinced that there is a God who is listening to her, and, he wants, and she wants him to pay attention to her request. And she prays on and on. Nothing is guaranteed. No. But she understands who God is. Uh, the husband didn't hinder her prayers. He did not try to get in the way of this and try to convince her that there are other things that were just as good as prayer or as uh, having a baby. She wanted that. And the thing that's so cool in this story is that God heard them. God heard the prayer. God answered her prayer. And then she, in obedience, did what she promised him he, she would do. He says that no razor would cut his head. That indicates that she was dedicating him to the service of God. And so she comes back to Eli and she says, here, take my baby. Well, he's actually not a baby by this time. He's weaned. But take my son. Let him live with you. Let him learn how to serve God. And that is the story of Samuel. I don't know what impact that had on Samuel as he grew up. Knowing that his mother, we think, well, that was pretty rough. His mother gave him up to live in the temple. Well, she came there quite often, I'm sure. And I'm sure he did have a relationship with her, but he knew that he had been dedicated to God. Now, at our church, we do that on a routine basis. We dedicate our children, right? We have a ceremony right here at Parkview, and you can bring your child up, and you can dedicate him. But our dedications often feel like they lack the pathos, the, the gravity of this particular dedication, but they shouldn't. When you bring your child before God and before the church, before us as pastors, your heart should be, God, this is your child. As good as a mom as I can be, as I want to be, this is your child. Do with him as you will. And we give him back, right? Now, I know as a dad, there are often my prayers focused on the fact that I didn't want to get in the way of God when my girls were growing up. Uh, there are too many times as a youth pastor, I could watch parents and instead of letting God do what God does in their lives, they would get in the way of that. Oh, we don't want our child to suffer. We don't want our child to be sad. We don't want... Yeah, but there are times when God uses those things to grow and to mature and to develop our kids and to be God followers, right? That's what is happening here. You go live in the temple, Samuel. And even though there's a separation there and it's breaking my heart, I want you to have this life. The cool part about this at the end of this story is that Hannah has many more children. Isn't that cool? Hannah has many more children. She not only prays in faith that she might receive a child with the promise that he will, she will give it back into the service of God, but 
God then blesses her because of her faithfulness with more of what she wanted in the first place. That doesn't always happen. I can just say that from experience, but I'm telling you that we have a God that loves us and cares for us. Being a parent is a spiritual adventure. It's something that we have to live. So what are we doing today? Like I said, it's a faith venture. It's acts of obedience that we need to follow and so forth. But I just want to make sure that we're understanding this, that this is an act of obedience. Mother's Day is a celebration to honor our parents and our mothers, but we have to learn how to be those kind of moms that deserve the highest honor right from the pages of Scripture and the examples of the women that we see here. This is the hope that we have. So let's go ahead and uh, just have a word of prayer as we close here. Father, thank you for just the scriptures that we were reading through today. I thank you for your love and grace and the way that you do. Just help us to understand what it means to be a person of faith, to walk after you. I ask, Lord, for every mom here that they would feel the special anointing of your spirit this morning, that they would love you, that they would want to risk all for their children to live in the light of your word. Father, I pray that these many homes that are represented here, that we would see kids come out of them ready to set the world on fire for Jesus Christ as a testimony to him. And Lord, when we run into tough times like the woman did whose husband died, even though he was a faithful servant of yours, we know, God, that you're walking with us through every one of those days. Lift our spirits, God. Focus our eyes on you. Father, forgive us when we lose sight of you and we despair. Hear our prayers because we give them earnestly. We give them faithfully. And we dedicate not only these moms here, but the kids that are in their homes that they might be raised, Father, in a standard that brings pleasure to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.